All right, we have started. This, All right. This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Andy Johnson. And today I have a very, very special guest, Rhonda Schlumbaum. Did I get that? You did. Thank you. And she is a real life teacher, not <laughs> a fake one, from Alaska. So, Rhonda, you were telling me today's your first day back. First day back. This is my 33rd year in education, my 26th at the school that I'm at. In what grade are you teaching? Second and third combination. Okay. And so I have about 10 uh, second graders and about 12 third graders. Oh, my. So when you're reading, how do you differentiate when you have such a wide variety? Well, that's partly why I got a master's in reading in 2003. Um, but I I think actually reading and writing is easier to differentiate mm -hmm. than math. And right. so actually we have a hard time um, teaching math because the levels are so specific. But reading, because teachers are used to having levels, mm -hmm. you know, kids coming in, um, low and high and middle, um, to me, it's easier to combine them and then meet kids where they're at by grouping um, lots of whole class uh, instruction. I like to use making words for teaching phonics because it'll hit those lower skills in the beginning of the lesson for those kids that are still learning like consonant, vowel consonants. And then it hits the higher kids at the end and it's in it. And because the lower kids are participating, it kind of brings them up. Okay. Do you use a, a basal in your teaching or do you use a workshop? What approach? What do you use? Workshop. Um, I have not used a basal in probably 20 years. Um, however, today I just got new materials that are being mandated by the state of Alaska. And by golly, it's a basal. So um, I'm not sure. I'm going to navigate that because I can't see that I would teach in that way. So I'm a, a little bit apprehensive. Tomorrow's our training. I can't imagine. Now, I, I'm old enough to remember the old days with basils and high, middle, and low group. And you're sitting at the kidney-shaped table working with the group, and the others are in their seats doing seat work. Yeah, there seems to be like workbooks to go through and um, that would be super boring. My whole, you know, workshop teaches with authentic text. So, I mean, for years and years, we have created in our school a book room that has multi-leveled books. And I know, you know, thematically or through science, whole things, fiction, nonfiction. And so I over the years, I've just figured out how to put um, levels together for what we're what I'm teaching in the beginning of the year, in the middle of the year, at the end of the year, and um, you know it kind of works. <laughs> Kids cool. are engaged; they love it. Yeah. Imagine that they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, they love teaching. They love writing. Most kids love writing. Yep. When they so, can share their ideas, I'm guessing. Yeah, totally. I what like have, to use. What do they write about? Oh my gosh! So at the beginning of the year, I like to use a lot of. Um, personal narratives, right? Because it's a good thing to do to get to know your new students. Um, and um, actually I do follow Lucy Calkins, um, just because we adopted it as a school. 
Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago. However, we've been told we can't use it anymore, but I'm still probably going to use parts of it because um, uh, she's put together some nice outlines and, um, you know, I, I do, I differentiate and I go off of it. I don't really follow it to the letter because, you know, I'm teaching, so it's, it needs to come from me. And um, I like to use a lot of Ralph Fletcher books. Oh my gosh. Um, his Marshfield dreams stories when I was a kid or stories when I was a boy stories when I was a kid, I think um, I use that all the time in the fall for personal narratives because he is writing from his childhood and kids get a kick out of um, hearing those little short stories, you know, then they can think, Oh, I can, I can write about losing a tooth and my grandma buried it in the garden, you know? So. Cool. Now, yeah. uh, do you have the same kids in second and third for two years then? Uh, not, I, I have the third grader. So I had my third graders this year, I had a second grader. So yep. half my class is new to, uh, is old to me and half is new. And That's so, awesome. yeah. So you loop with them um, or whatever. Uh, but you know what? It is, it is so amazing to have half your class trained. Yes. You start the year running. You don't have to spend that much time on on management. You, you know, the kids know the drill. They know how to use their book boxes. You can have those kids train the other kids. It's super, super nice. And it's that Vygotsky thing. You learn by interacting with other people. Yep. Higher and That's higher exactly levels. exactly right. So who told you you couldn't use Lucy Calkins? <laughs> well, uh, um, Emily Hanford evidently came to Alaska <laughs> and um, in, uh, in the spring of uh, this last year. And um, lots of people went down to Anchorage to see her. I did not go. And um, they came back saying that, you know, Lucy Calkins is bad. And, um, and Emily Hanford so is good. Right? <laughs> yeah evidently she's a journalist and knows everything about reading instruction <laughs> uh, how, how many reading classes has emily hanford taught yeah i don't know i don't know but i've taught hundreds of kids how to read <laughs> what was the reason why you were told not to use lucy cockins um just that she's bad that's it <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry oh <laughs> She's bad. <laughs> okay. Bad. Bad in a moral sense or no? I don't I don't know. You know, a lot of people complain about her, but um I don't I've seen her do some beautiful things like creating um Saturday classes online um for free. And you know, as a teacher in Alaska, yeah, I mean, it's cost so much to travel. Yep. I love that she creates things that are free and they're beautiful. And I get up at four o'clock in the morning and listen to it and learn something new. Oh my. And everything you adopt and adapt. I mean, it would be malpractice if you took something and did it exactly. Right. Yep. I think you alluded to it. You're teaching your kids, not a program or curriculum. Exactly. Tell yep. me about this. You have to, I think. Go ahead. I'll tell I you about the, I'm no, sorry. I tell you about the what? The book room, is that a library? Is that something in your class? No. Well, I have a huge library because I've spent thousands of dollars on books over the years. And um, 
you know, try to keep buying new, especially nonfiction. Nonfiction in second and third grade is where it's at. Yep. Those kids, you know, really love those things. So, um, and trying to trying to reach my boys to make sure I, you know, have enough for them and lots of graphic novels now. Um, but the book room was started even before I came to my elementary school, Salcha Elementary. And um, it, we just had a cabinet at first with the second and third grade. I took her position after she retired. I was a K, the K-1 teacher then. And we had, you know, just all these books that we collected sets of and that we would teach from there and we would just pull out the books and we didn't even check them out because it's just, we only have, um, back then there was only four teachers K to six. Now we have three teachers K to five. So um, it's a very small school, but over the years, if there was ever any extra money or if our, our school district in, you know, 15 years ago was pretty progressive. And if you didn't want to use the basil um, or if there was extra supplemental money, they would give it to you and you could purchase book sets or, you know, things that you felt you needed. And so we have a really good book room, um, I think. And, um, you know, like we even have sets of Mercy Watson, Kate DeCamillo's, you know, so that's a fairly newer series um, and lots of nonfiction as well. Kindergarten through sixth grade. So Alexa, oh, sorry, uh, it's okay. Amazing what can happen if you allow teachers to make choices. And yeah, I mean, my motivation goes up right when I'm in control and kids motivation goes up too when they are in control. Now, now think about, well, I like what you said about nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I was surprised. Tell me more about that. How many younger children prefer nonfiction? Uh, I don't know, like I've never done a survey necessarily. I just know that through teaching them, kids love nonfiction. And this is the age to grab them, I feel, as a second and third grade teacher. Just knowing eight and nine-year-olds, they want to know about the world. They are curious. They, it's all, you know, all the facts that they can get about any kind of animal that they're interested in or um, any kind of country, anything. So, um, and I love that too, as a, as a teacher and a farmer, yep. I'm all about, I'm all about nonfiction. So, um, and I like teaching them about, I mean, I feel like it's my obligation to teach them about the trees in the boreal forest. Cause we are in it. I want them to understand about bird migrations and systems and salmon and, um, things that are in our environment. So that's my job is to turn them on to where we live. You sound like a magic teacher. <laughs> well, I love it. You can tell that. And that's what builds the basis for the reading expository text later on. Mm -hmm. Having that basis. Well, what brings you joy in teaching? Uh, the kids, totally the kids. Every day I greet them at the door and um, then we have a morning meeting and um, something that I've been doing for quite a few years now is um, re reading lots. Uh, I've always read to them a lot. So I re usually read a picture book first thing in the morning. And then sometime during the day, depending on our schedule, I do a read aloud. Um, and I used to read 
you know, and they would just listen or they would draw. And then a few years ago, I just thought, gosh, if they could just track, you know, I think it'll really help them with their eye movement and their, you know, strengthening their eyes. And then you just never know, like it might just make them really take off. And I think, I really think that's true. So I just try to have them track as they go as best they can. There are a few kids that their attention spans are not very good. And I usually have them come close to my rocking chair, but I have them open their books of their chapter books. And I'm talking, you know, Charlotte's web and the BFG and, um, uh, any Kate DeCamillo book that I can get my hands on. So like the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane. So, um, and they turn on to reading like nobody's business. And I just, I usually have a camera around my neck at, when I'm at school so that I can just like do it one handed, you know, and then I put it in my newsletter and cause I'll be sitting there reading and they're tracking. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a classroom of children just stuck into a book and then feel, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. If you haven't ever been in a classroom, it's just this magical thing where they're all in it. And then you'll come to a part where, you know, it's exciting or sad or something. And there's just a collective like presence, I guess, of all the children. And, and sometimes we'll just stop. And I love, love, love to do it so much because um, when kids like don't know a word or there's, um, you know, something that they really connect to, they will, um, ask a question like, what does that mean? Or, or, um, and, and I tell them, you know, I don't know every word, you know, you've, you have to stop me and tell me what you need to know. And then I will, you know, explain it or, you know, we're a community, we'll help each other. And so, oh my gosh, the discussions that second and third graders can have about the world and kindness um, and character development, it's just truly a gift to be able to be present when they are making all these connections. So I really wish people everywhere could, could be in a room when that happens. Sounds like you're having some flow experiences, some peak uh-huh. experiences with children. Mm-hmm. And they're fully engaged. Yeah. Do you have behavior problems when children are fully engaged? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. I they're... actually, I actually don't have very many. Knock on wood. Um, behavior problems. I mean, I have, of course, we have. But um, I learned something really important from a, a mentor teacher of mine. She always said, "You can't take anything out from a child until you put deposits in." And so I think about that all the time. Like, you know, I try to make connections. I, you know, the K-1 teacher, I see those kids in the hall and, I, and I'm always trying to put a good positive thing into those kids that I see coming up to me because then I can correct them and, you know, take a withdrawal. So <laughs> that's my, that's my, that's my MO. I'm going to steal that idea and teach it to my undergraduate students. Uh Yeah. You're absolutely right. So much of learning is the emotional part. Yep. And I have a child that is possibly autistic coming up to me. And all I know is he has a fetish with cats. So um, I already have thought that my first read aloud that I don't have a set of 
is The Grand Escape about the cat. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but um, I'm trying to remember the author, which I'm blanking on right now. But it's all about some cats that like sneak out in the night. And so it's a super good one for the beginning of the year because it's not, it's very easy to comprehend. So I'm going to start the year with that. So imagine the money being spent on the science of reading new curriculum. If that money could be spent instead on books, what do you think the difference would be? Well, I think the difference would be amazing. But I also think we need to spend money on teachers and professional development. So um, I guess that's where I've been having a hard time um, lately, you know, like, what do you mean there's no phonics taught? I've been teaching phonics my whole curriculum, my whole time. What do you mean, you know, we're not, I don't know. Uh, um, I just can't understand it. But then I think, well, maybe there are teachers that don't know these things, or maybe they just, I mean, I guess I've always been a studier. And yeah. so, and I've taught in a small school where if I don't do my job, it's totally reflected on me because I'm the only third grade teacher. So, yeah. So it's, I have the weight on me and I understand that and it's good. That's a good thing. It's the joy of having a small school mm -hmm. versus these big shopping mall schools. Yeah. And, and there's lots of things, there's lots of practices I see happening um, in schools, things that are maybe not research-based at all. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with walk to read, but there's, um, I don't know, my district is all over it. And, and I don't really know exactly how it's being used because in bigger schools and maybe, and maybe that's a solution in bigger schools, you know, if they're having success in it, then fine. Um, but uh, in our little school, I mean, you know, I have second graders and third graders. I have, you know, some of them are probably first grade readers, kindergarten readers up to fifth grade readers. Yeah. So that's a beautiful thing, actually. Oh. Be because I think that those um, those sometimes those um, less mature readers have the most insight or different different way of thinking yes. and they bring it out while I'm doing a read aloud. So a reading disability doesn't mean a thinking disability. Yeah. Or an imaginary yeah, right. disability. Yeah. Or an emotional disability. Mm -hmm. They're True. still they're still connecting. Can you remember back to when you started teaching what that first year was like for you? <laughs> so I was, a, I was teaching in Texas then. Um, and my first year teaching, it was awful. Um, yeah. I taught in a school, Shenandoah Elementary, and I had, there were eight teachers, six to eight teachers per grade level. It was a huge elementary school. And I had the most beautiful second grade class. I, um, I student taught in first grade, but then I got this second grade position in Texas. So, um, but then right after um, Labor Day, uh, the weekend of Labor Day, the school district decided to put me into fourth grade because they had an influx of fourth graders. And so over the three-day weekend, I had to switch my classroom out for oh fourth grade and you know brand new teacher and then teach um fourth grade 
And so all my kids went away and I got all these new kids and how they decided, which the principal decided, they took the last enrolled from every classroom and gave me those kids. And so you can imagine those are the... Those are the kids that ha usually have the most behavior problems because they're the parents that, you know, just didn't do it till the last second. Not, I mean, that's what happened anyway. Yep. And I had kids in their fetal position. I had, I had really abused kids. I had kids that had just came from Taiwan the weekend before and didn't speak any English. And I cried every single day. Oh, I went home and and my husband said, why do you want to be a teacher again? And I said, because I love it. <laughs> but, and so it was so hard. That first year was awful. Um, but I stuck with it and stuck to my guns. And I, I probably learned everything I needed to know that year. Wow. You know, we think we can create a finished teaching product in three semesters of undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And you pointed to the importance of teacher professional development. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about that, how you see that and the importance of teacher professional development. Well, partly I think we have to we have to find master teachers and put and put people that are beginning teachers with them, either in undergraduate school or those first couple of years of practice. And I often think about it. You know, you're not an expert at anything. That Malcolm Gladwell book, he said 10,000 hours until you're an expert at anything, which is about eight years of teaching, yep. <laughs> I figured out. Wow. So, um, <laughs> uh, so if that's true, um, then, you know, that takes a long time to get good at this practice. And we always say that teachers are practicing, right? You're, yep. and, and so think of it like... Um, a doctor is also having a practice. And um, I, I actually equate a lot of um, teaching with doctors because, you know, if you go to a doctor and you prescribe, you're prescribed something, the doctor looks at the whole person mm -hmm. and then they prescribe medication. But um, if you need it and then, but people don't react the same to the same treatment. Mm -hmm. So the doctor might have to do something different. I mean, there's general things that work, but sometimes they don't always work. So yeah. it's exactly true with teaching reading. And if it's not working, they don't keep doing it. Right. And I, I think that's our obligation um, to switch it up. If it doesn't work, um, change something. But professional development, I belong to the International Reading Association mm -hmm. or wait, International Literacy Association now <laughs> it used to be reading. <laughs> um, I, um, I, I'm also the, um, this year, the president of my local chapter, okay. but um, I just believe in connecting with teachers and it, gosh, in, in Alaska, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I got to go on retreats. Hmm. I, we got to um, put on conferences here in Alaska I mean, we've had Reggie Routman here. We've had uh, um, uh, Ralph Fletcher has come to Alaska. Uh, Richard Allington has come a few times. Um, you know, I've gotten to hear really amazing teachers and uh, and researchers, and I've gotten to go um, to conferences, you know, um, in Chicago and other places. And I feel like that is super important. But I also believe 
Conferences are great. They're a great shot in the arm and they're good to, to hear if you're hearing a real researcher, mm -hmm. but it's only a shot in the arm. And I think the best professional development I've ever gotten has been things that are long-term. So like the National Writing Project. Mm -hmm. So we had in Alaska, we had something called the um, Writing Consortium. And mm -hmm. so it was based on the National Writing Project. And so teachers would go for you know, two weeks to a month, sometimes like retreat style. And you would like work on writing for that whole time. And you'd be a better writer yourself so that you could be a better teacher of writing. And so I've done that. Um, and so I think just studying it, um, uh, professional learning communities, PLCs are yep. important. Um, book studies are important. Yep. So um, but it takes a lot of time and new teachers don't come in there. There's no way you could actually really be ready unless you spend about five years, you know, following a mentor teacher, probably. I think it's too hard. It's too hard of a job. We prepare them to begin the journey. Yeah. And the one and done workshop, you're right, doesn't work. It's contact over time. So you have a chance to think and synthesize and talk with others and try mm -hmm. out these new ideas. That's mm -hmm. how professional development happens. Yeah. The difference between a novice and expert is the 10,000 hours, but it's also knowledge. Right. Situations. Under, yeah, an experience, understanding mm -hmm. how literacy happens, how learning occurs. Mm -hmm. Well, as you think about the science of reading and the impacts, how do you think that's going to impact your class and your ability to teach? Well, <laughs> um, as as a master teacher, at least I think I'm a master teacher by now. Um, what? <laughs> I think that uh, I am going to um, wade, wade the waters and avoid the rocks. So, um, you know, I'm just gonna do what I know is right because Deep down in my core, I cannot, I cannot just follow, you know, phonics lessons for an hour. I just can't, I'm not going to do that to kids because I, I know that I would be robbing them of joy. Mm -hmm. um, I do teach phonics, but yeah. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do what they're telling me to do. <laughs> I'm not going to follow the basil. I can't do it. And you can still teach the skills in the basil. Yeah. I but can teach it your own way. Right. Exactly. It I will. I will look at the skills and I'll make sure that I'm doing it. And I, actually, I was doing that a little bit today. And I was like, oh, see, look, making words has doubling the consonant before the suffix. Ah, this you fly thing also has that. Huh, it's all the same. <laughs> you can do it. Well, what? What would you like parents to know about teaching reading, about how you do things? Well, I write a newsletter every year um, and try to help parents understand how to read. But mostly I just want parents to help their child find joy in it and help them find books that they love to read and um, set up a place for them to read at night and um just support their child where and wherever they are. Um, I had a little girl that I 
tutored a little bit at our farm at lunchtime a couple of times this summer. And um, she would come down from her farm and we'd sit at my picnic table and do some reading together. And then she would help me out a little bit on the farm and I'd give her flowers and then she'd go home. Oh. So, um, <laughs> so, uh, but finding the joy and not stressing too much if a kid is not like quote unquote on level just keep working and not giving up and keep trying things until the child gets it they all learn in different ways and at different rates mm -hmm. what would you like my undergraduate pre-service teachers what advice do you have for them i'm going to show them this by the way <laughs> this, this is good stuff uh um gosh They're wondering it's, how they should teach reading. They're going, oh my gosh, what do I do? Well, I think you just have to start. You have to know that all those pillars are important, but mm -hmm. plus writing. I, I would say actually focus on writing. Yep. Focus on how to be a writing teacher because you apply what you know about language in writing. And then you know, you have something concrete to, um, to know where a kid is. Actually, I think about that a lot. Um, when kids write, they can only write at their level. Mm -hmm. They can't write below it. And and therefore, you know, you're right in that zone of proximal development. You, you know exactly what they need. So I think teaching reading through writing is um, very magical, actually, because kids will connect. So like any kind of genre. So if they're, you know, if you're, if you're reading um, information books, you should be writing information books at, in tandem because it really cements it and then kids really get it. And then if you're reading opinions, you should be writing opinions. So connections. I wish you would have been my third grade teacher. My kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> that sounds good. Well, what else can you tell us about teaching reading? That's a very general, what's worked for you and what hasn't worked for you? What's a failure that, that you've made? A failure. Well, what's worked? Let me go back. Yep. What's I, worked? I have, okay, here's something interesting. I always think I can teach anybody to read. I just got to figure it out, right? Yes. So, um, so I taught a blind boy how to read. Truly, oh. a tr I mean, he had no vision at all. And mm -hmm. he had to learn to read Braille. He obviously had an assistant to help him, mm -hmm. which happened to be my really good friend. And she would braille all the little books. I wanted to give him the um, the feeling of being just like all those other kids. Mm -hmm. But he taught me so many important things. Um, first of all, so we would, I have like little story box books in my classroom. I, he was like a second grader when I had him. And um we would put braille um see through braille on the pages that I still have some of these books in my room I had charts that she would put braille on um so that he could go up and feel and point to words oh. just like just like the other kids I'm not kidding you it was just magical and um sorry my dog um and um she um but what was so good about having this boy was that I had to explain things a lot better because he had to understand it. So I was buying um, 
toys that were, you know, replicas of whales. So that he, when I read a book about whales, he could touch it and feel what a, what a fluke was or, you know, oh my gosh, that kid taught me so much. So that kid went to college and that's all I know. Like, I don't know where he is now, but I do know he, he graduated and went to college. So that makes me happy. But then I've also taught kids that were autistic and didn't have much vocabulary or even, um, well, we didn't know. Actually, we didn't know how much he understood. And so um, he, uh, I was trying to get a handle on how much comprehension he had. So, but he couldn't tell me sentences. And so I would have him read a story that he didn't know. I was trying to benchmark him. Mm-hmm. So I, I gave him a story that he didn't know, but I had copied out um, pictures of the book that he just read. And then I would, and then I had the aide help me and it was like, um, which happened first, which happened second. And he'd find the pictures or where's the character, you know, and I would ask him questions and he would understand it. So I could kind of get a a handle on how much he was getting out of those books because he couldn't say all the words um, that I could understand. But here's the thing. He lives in my community still. He reads Harry Potter. Oh, he's, he's like 20. How old is he now? 22 I think yep. um but he 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 reads Harry Potter and so to me that makes me so happy because that kid learned to read but he he got he learned to read and with storybox books and a stack he had to have like a lot of repetition because he couldn't focus for very long mm-hmm. and so there was an aide with him and they would just read the next one the next one and she would um she would just have him read the next book and the next book and the next book and they'd go through a stack and he would do it. But if it was a long book, he couldn't do it. But those short ones, he felt accomplished and he would. So I'm not kidding. We had stacks of books that he would go through every day. Wow. I know. Well, Rhonda, it brings me joy knowing that you're a teacher. <laughs> Thank you. And there's teachers out there. It really does. It really does. It gives me hope. And I hope you don't retire for a long, long time because we uh, need teachers like uh, you in our classrooms. Yeah. And we just, yeah, I think this is my last year though, which makes me so sad, but maybe I'll help at the university. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It makes me sad that we don't honor the wisdom, the experience, the knowledge and expertise of magic teachers like you. And that's the sad part. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I will keep working for education though, some way. Maybe at my farm, have a different reading thing. I don't know. There you go. You could have a reading camp at your farm. Yeah. All right. Any last words? Um, no, but I just appreciate that you took the time to um, talk to teachers like me. And um, I'm always happy to help people. So if any of your students need help, just give them my email address. <laughs> ah, we'll take you up on that. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Rhonda. Okay. Rhonda Schoenblum. Bloombaum. Bloombaum. You bet.